Hi there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by our sponsor, Snaps.talk. If you want to look like a Hollywood star on your social media or capture a special moment like a child's birthday or you need high-resolution photos for a sales brochure or your company website, Snaps.talk with a K offer professional photography and videography shootings for social media and print in Tokyo. They're experienced, they're flexible, they're super affordable. Rates start at just 3,000 yen. And photos can be delivered as data, of course, or printed out in several sizes, anywhere from a postcard to a poster. So feel free to contact them, snaps.talktok at gmail.com for inquiries. And also check Alex Watanabe's Instagram profile. He's one of the founders, Tokyo Night Owl, he's called on Instagram. And you'll see some of their work over there. Guaranteed, you're not going to regret hiring them. Okay, so for today's episode, here's our chat with Nicholas, originally from the U.S., now living in Tokyo, and soon to be returning to the U.S. again, actually. Uh, he's contacted us a while back and now again to ask us for help in kicking off a family member's investment portfolio here in Japan for them. And his company, Native Shark, which is a phenomenal Japanese language online tutoring platform and community, which is one of the stronger suits, um, he's also one of our new sponsors. So the second part of our conversation is going to be about the company, the platform, and how they can help you or anyone else study Japanese efficiently and effectively. I know I'm definitely going to be using it since I've been extremely lazy with my studies to date. Um, but before that, we of course talk shop all about properties, locations, yields, management and purchase fees, where and how we find the properties we facilitate, um, how we vet them, what due diligence includes, and much, much more. So lay back, grab a cold beverage or a warm beverage if you happen to be on the other side of the equator. Enjoy the conversation, and I shall see you again on the other side. Cool. So we, we spoke about, what, two years ago now, I think, right? Something like that, yeah. It must have been about two years because I was in San Diego then, and I'm in Tokyo now. Yep. And yeah, and then back then we were thinking about getting into some Japanese properties and then we ended up using that money for other things. And then now here we are again. <laughs> yeah. And what um so you've obviously got a bit of a history with um Japan which made you like sort of steer yourself toward that or was it something else? Okay, so yeah, I do have a lot of experience in Japan. And as both you and I know, properties are a lot cheaper here than they would be in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and it's just a different type of real estate investment. And I'm helping a family member sort of diversify their portfolio. And it seems like, you know, if you can get a certain amount of cash flow in Japan that you would also get in the U.S., but you already have most of your properties in the U.S., why not expand to another market? And, yeah, so it's really just for diversification geographically and um, diversification of the currency as well that you get paid in. And yeah. it's not so much Japan. It's just any country that is not where the most of their portfolio is. That said, I mean, I do like the fact that, you know, you're less likely to have a tenant, you know, trash your place or do things like that. I think we both know what tenants are like in Japan compared to somewhere like the U.S., for example. Uh, not, not purposefully, but they do tend, I mean, you get hikikomori, like the recluses, and you do get um, yeah, elderly, yeah. elderly people who don't just don't take really good care of the apartment or, um, God forbid, they might die. Yeah, yeah. 
there, there are mm -hmm. damages that occur, but they're definitely not intentional. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then just the risk of, I think, damages and vandalism at the price point that you can get a property in Japan. Like, if you're paying for a place in the U.S. that much, like, just the class of the unit would have to be much lower. So then you get a certain type of tenant with that sort of entry point. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, you know, it's not necessarily... You mentioned that the family member has... Um as assets already in the year. That's usually the first question that we ask people just to sort of try and pinpoint what would be best for them. So could you give me a, like a rough idea of what the portfolio looks like uh, in the US? Is it like more growth oriented, more cash flow oriented, um, high ticket? Um, it's a lot of stuff that started out as growth but has you know, grown into cash flow. They have a lot of um, investment in self-storage facilities. Okay. And a bit in multifamily, um, I think no single family at all, and then some commercial space also. Okay, so mostly cash flow from the sounds of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're not they're not speculating right now. Good, this family members retired. They don't want to, you know, predict try to predict the future and make money ten years from now. They want to fund their retirement. Okay. And so they're looking for something similar when they diversify as well, cash flow oriented mainly? Yeah, just good cash flow in the stable market, you know, something that you more or less know what you're probably going to get and you can rely on it. Okay. And did they have, um, well, you obviously know Japan probably more than they do, but did they have specific uh, locations or property profiles or tenant profiles or anything like that in mind? Not really. So we talked a couple of years ago and, you know, you have that great PDF series about um, investing in rental properties in Japan yeah. uh, that you wrote. And so I had them read it and they were like, yeah, it sounds good. And then as for the markets, like the geographical location type of tenant, things like that, they basically just told me, I just, you just pick it because yeah. obviously I know a lot more about Japan than they do. And I'm also managing all their portfolio in the U.S. anyway, so it's like... Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like, um, you said family member, so you're like a family office admin. Yeah, I'm a family office. Yeah, I'm a one-person family office. Cool. Okay, so... Well, the, the idea is, you know, if I can grow their wealth um, yeah. and let them keep it the rest of their life, maybe I'll get some of it, you know, in the future. <laughs> That's a good strategy. Okay. Yeah. So um, what's their budget like? What are they thinking to allocate to the diversification? Yeah, so to start, we were thinking like $100,000 yeah. to invest in Japanese real estate. And then, you know, if, if they end up, because they just want to try it out at first, and then if they like it, then maybe they'll go for more after that. Okay, so they're looking for safe and stable. I would usually point them towards residential, like you mentioned from the, um, the e-books that you've read. Um, but mm -hmm. I should just just to um, tick the box, I should probably say that there are, just because of COVID, there are very good commercial deals at the moment that can be purchased at a, at a fairly significant discount compared to what they were two years ago. Um, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's, but with the current um, state of affairs, you it would be in many cases something that you'd have to invest in and then sit on and wait for business to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be a bit of a waiting game, and it is a bit more speculative than residential. But um, if you're looking for mm -hmm. a 
bargain, commercial is probably a better place to okay. be. But Satan's table is yeah. still essential. Yeah. We're not totally married to one or the other, and we could even possibly divide the two. Um, when you say commercial, you mean like restaurants and things like that? So, or yeah, spaces, space? spaces that were previously used as restaurants and bars and are now suffering um, are up for sale. Um, hospitality properties, like the um, kind of uh, places that used to be uh, run as guest houses or share houses and that kind of thing. And these would normally not be condo units, so they'd be uh, houses, not necessarily too old, but not brand new either, so houses. Um, yeah, I mean, we'd be for sure interested in those. Yeah, yeah I like the idea of anything that's um, related to, for example, like short-term rentals also, just because, you know, every day I'm talking to other people studying Japanese and everyone's talking about how they're just waiting on the sidelines to come back to Japan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a lot of these places, like the, the advantage with houses is, is that, um, yeah, so they can't be used as uh, guest houses or share houses at the moment because there's no tourists and not much movement, but they can still be used for long-term rentals. And mm -hmm. then uh, hopefully in a few years' time when uh, tourism does come back, well, you know, when a tenancy lease uh, ends, you just don't renew it and you shift back to short-term stays. So... It's a, it's a yeah. strategy that people are pursuing with long-term, um, with, with potentially thinking to the future to short-term stay. So you want to pick locations that are a bit more central and a bit more attractive um, as opposed yeah. to, like if you're targeting residential condo units, then anywhere that's close to a station, even if it's suburban, would be fine. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're looking at a place that you would want to utilize for a short-term stay potentially down the track, then you would be um, getting something a bit more central and maybe not as old. Mm -hmm. um, so that would change your budget allocation. Not like normally I would say 100K would get you two or three condos in attractive high-yield location for long-term rentals. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at a place that could potentially be used for uh, short-term stays down the track, then maybe a single property as opposed to two or three. Gotcha. Yeah, I think we should probably start with the two or three um, long-term rentals, and then maybe we can play around with the idea of yeah of a, a single short-term one later. I'm also concerned when it comes to short-term with like regulations. So, like for example, in this area of Tokyo where we live, I know that they suddenly had a rule that if you wanted to have like an Airbnb type offering, you ha it's a minimum stay of like six nights or something like that. Uh, that's, um, that's from Minpaku for Airbnb type, um, like by the week or by the day. I, I was more referring to monthly leases. Oh, okay, like monthly apartments. Like monthly yeah, so monthly apartments okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Normal, normal lease legislation, so there's no, there's no special compliance that you need to work with. Okay. And cool. if and when, well, then never mind, yeah. Yeah, if and when you do want to hack it and, and try to get it up, then you can look into legislation from Inpaku, but that's just a maybe. So, okay, so for standard long-term lease, um, two, three properties under 100K, we're looking at mansion units or condos. Okay, I mean, uh, yeah, either way. And you said you're not too concerned about location, so I would probably steer clear of central Tokyo and central Osaka just to get the yield a bit higher. Yeah, I'd, I'd be fine with that. I don't. I mean, I care a little bit about location, but yeah, I, I know that 
you're not going to get that kind of a yield in central Tokyo, for example. But yeah, I mean, look, Tokyo, Osaka, um, and to some extent, central Fukuoka and Kyoto, if you get beyond five, five and a half percent before tax, it'd be really rare. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking to move closer to say seven, seven and a half percent, then um, Yokohama, Kobe, um, suburban Fukuoka, suburban Kyoto, maybe Nagoya these days, because they have taken a bit of a hit after COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and prefectural capital, secondary cities. So like close to where you are, it'd be Saitama, um, mm-hmm. Kawasaki. If you're down this way in Kyushu, it'd be Kumamoto. Um, Chiba City is pretty good. Yield can be higher than Tokyo. Yeah. Um, Chiba generally, aside from Chiba City, I would normally steer clear of. I, I just actually read about a good town. Um, let me bring the name up. Inzai. Do you know Inzai? I haven't heard of it. It's a little town, about 105K, um, and it's recently had some infrastructures upgraded, so it's now less than an hour to the airport and less than an hour to Tokyo. Less than an hour to Narita? Yeah, and less than an hour to Oh, Tokyo. okay. So, but like, it's in Chiba prefecture. Okay. Chiba city, yeah. Um, That's interesting, for sure. Sapporo, Sapporo is an option, but Sapporo, the winters can be pretty rough from tenancies if you happen to get a vacancy exactly at the wrong time kind of thing. Yeah, people just don't move around that much, but you could potentially go up on paper at least when you purchase eight, eight and a half percent in Sapporo. Um, gotcha. okay. But then again, because of the winters, if you hit a vacancy or a big maintenance issue um, that's derived from winter fundamentals, then you could be harming your yield pretty significantly quickly. So, I mean, well, we look at yeah. come out of there, but we want to see the yield being a bit higher on purchase. Yeah, it makes sense, for and sure. Probably it. There's the two big sh- uh, cities in uh, Shikoku, Takam- Takamatsu, and the other one, which I, I keep forgetting the name of the other one. Um, they also can generate Ma- yield. Matsuyama, maybe? Matsuyama, yes. But, no, okay. they, they also go up to 7, 7.5, uh, sometimes 8% if we're lucky. Cool. And all of those locations, you could probably fit two or three within that 100K budget. So are you recommending to get them all in the same city as opposed to s- spreading across three different places? Or if you are buying two or three, I'd probably lean towards spreading them if possible. Yeah, okay. Um, but a lot of it is just a case of deer hunting, right? Like we, you know. Yeah, like what is the deal, yeah. Exactly, like whatever the, um, the realtor send our way or whatever we find online. And then once we start digging into them, and making offers, then due diligence info starts coming in, and then we might suddenly realize that the tenant is not that attractive, or the building um, reserve fund or the renovation history is not that attractive. So even if the deal looks good on paper, we might end up skipping it for some reason. How do you source deals? Same as everybody else. I mean, the realtors that we've already yeah. worked with and have done deals with in the past will send us their um, listings before they publish them online. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, when you look at, I look at, you know, online real estate sites, and there's not a lot posted in the way of, like, investment properties, I've noticed. Oh, 
I don't know which. Maybe one. I'm looking at the wrong side. Yeah, that's, I, I was gonna politely try to say that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. There are a lot of. Them I guess I shouldn't. I shouldn't be using the ones that are marketed toward, um, like retail purchasers. Then I guess. Um. Well, I mean, your Japanese is obviously up to speed. Are you looking at the Japanese websites or the English ones? Yeah, like Sumo or any. Oh, I only look at Japanese ones. I don't even know of any yeah, English so ones. Sumo can be a. Uh, uh, Rakumachi, I'll send you a bunch of uh, links that you can look at. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, to be fair, I haven't actually looked in a couple of years, so maybe things have changed. Um, my, my thing with the website is um, there are plenty of listings on there, but by the time we start digging into them and contact, contacting agents, and um, the yield that they list is not the actual yield. They forget some of the monthly fees. They write that it's uh, tenanted. By the time you call them, it's actually vacant or going to be vacant soon. So uh, it's more uh, for me, it's more a case of just sometimes misrepresentation on the websites. Gotcha. Um, but the listings are there. Um, so I'll, I'll send you a list of websites. We're happy to either um, research for you or because it sounds like you're pretty, um, pretty okay with researching online on your own, we'll probably stick to our research being what we can get directly from realtors that we're already in contact with. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you normally get better deals that way? Not better, but we just, we have a chance to make offers on them before they hit the market. That's all. So it's okay. the same deal. Yeah, I guess you just, sorry, go ahead. Wait. Oh, no, yeah, just whenever you hear about people, you know, in, like, real estate investing in the U.S., for example, they're all about finding properties before they get to the MLS, like the, the listing services, and they talk about how difficult it is to find good deals once they're on a site like Zillow or something. Yeah. Um, so I was just, you think it's not like that in Japan? No, definitely not as bad as that. Um, okay. A lot of, I'd say, 60% of the properties that we source uh, do come off the MLS, um, cool. There's no, like, I mean, aside from like, really big deals like hotels or big office buildings might not even make it to websites. They'll go just um, seller to seller, uh, seller to buyer or via kind of proprietary agents that don't actually list online. Um, but the smaller budget, standard residential, small commercial, um, it's good to get in directly via the realtor before they post because it just gives us an option to... Um, um, talk about due diligence and submit an offer and have a conversation with the seller before they start getting five or six or seven different offers online. Gotcha, um, yeah. Okay. But otherwise, there's no huge advantage there. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. It's nice. <laughs> okay, so we'll look into that and we'll start sending you listings as we find them and we'll send you the website links for you to actually... Um, maybe look at stuff on your own as well. Sounds good. And then when you find something that piques your interest, just let us know. We'll need to to avoid burning our relationship with realtors because um, it, it's a fairly cautious relationship that we strike with them, especially if we haven't worked with them before. Um, mm -hmm. So we try to ask our customers not to submit like... Um, you know, like I know Australia, I guess the U.S. is similar. Like you'd submit five or six or seven different offers and whatever gels first, you'll grab it and then just like um, cold shoulder the rest of them kind of thing. Um, mm. We try to avoid doing that here because that will burn our relationship with the realtor. So we'd normally ask our customers that um, if the numbers work out for them and they want to submit an offer to start getting due diligence info, they should be willing to proceed with the deal in case the due diligence info checks out. 
Okay. So not like shooting in all yeah, directions fine. kind of thing, just like more prioritizing which of the deals that you found is more interesting and then pursuing them one by one kind of thing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, not like um, saying that you're going to do your due diligence, but actually thinking, you know, I can come up with any reason I want to back out of this deal, <laughs> but, yeah. which I've heard many people recommend doing in the U.S. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, like if the reason doesn't make sense to the realtor and it's, you know, it's completely it's completely derived from you just changing your mind or your circumstances changing whatever excuse we give them and they're just gonna, not going to work with us again so we prefer to avoid that if possible yeah yeah, yeah of course and just because the, uh, it's, it's not a nice thing to say but gaijins have a bit of a tire kicker reputation here so we try to okay yeah. that we're actually not like that kind of thing yeah, it's not the most fun even just getting an apartment as a guy, <laughs> as I can attest. <laughs> yeah. Are you renting now? Oh, uh, we are now. Oh, it's easy now because my wife's Japanese. But back when I was, you know, just some single guy in, in Japan trying to get apartments, um, I think the first time I went to a real estate agent, you know, we sat down together and we looked through the MLS and she said, okay, let's just pick out every apartment that you think looks like it fits your criteria uh, and no, we picked so i think we picked we picked about 26 of them and then she said okay i'm gonna call all the agents and then i'll get back to you about how many of them say guys you know okay and our list of 26 went down to six <laughs> uh, yeah that should be illegal but it, it was all right yeah i think it is technically illegal it's just that nobody even pursues that i suppose not yeah yeah Maybe okay. it'll change. I don't know. Yeah, I hope so. So yeah, we, we as long as we um, make it nice and proper, and if we turn back, uh, like if we submit an offer and then pull it back, it has to be related to the information the seller provided. So mm -hmm. we, we can say, oh, well, that tenant profile is not that attractive, or the building profile is not that attractive. So we're gonna we're gonna pull out, or we're gonna reduce the offer price because of that. But if we just say, "Oh, actually, we're not gonna buy at the moment," or "Actually, um, we changed our mind," then that's not good for us, and then it's not good for our customers as well. So that's the only thing we try to avoid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. But um, yeah, otherwise, pretty standard. So you're looking at reasonably attractive locations. We're obviously not gonna recommend uh, inaka or like spaces where you can't get tenants when the property becomes vacant. Yeah, uh, but aside from that, generally speaking, all locations, assuming we stick to the um, basically 10 minutes walk to a station, yeah. um, let's say avoiding fourth or fifth floor if there's no elevator, um, anything uh, else aside from our standard criteria? Yeah, I have, I have some just, just questions, a few. Uh, so, for example, like let's say we invested in a property and it's getting what a seven percent return, yeah. for example. Um, I know it depends on the property, but like how long do you think you can expect to be getting that return? Because I know that you know in Japan we're not we're not investing for capital appreciation. We're just mostly doing it for the cash flow. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Like the the time horizon, I suppose, of the asset? It depends on a few factors. So the first thing is obviously how old the building is. Um, as they get older, they require more maintenance and then the building fees tend to go up, the monthly building fees. 
Um, so that's, okay. again, part of the due diligence is to check if the building has been generally well-maintained. If it's been generally well-maintained and it's not too old, let's say up to 30 years of age, then we're fairly confident that any building fee hikes would be um, within reason. So it might go up from, um, I don't know, 6,000 yen a month to 8,000 yen a month, but it's not going to suddenly double. Okay. Um, so that's the first part. The second part is we want to check that the rent that's currently being paid by the current tenant, I'm assuming you're buying into tenanted properties and not vacant ones. So we want to check that the tenants that's currently in place is paying a rent that's on average um, close to what the market rate is. Um, because you'll often find, because of the um, two and a half decades of deflation that we've had here um, up to 2012 or so, if a tenant's moved in uh, in the 19s or early 2000s, which is not that rare in Japan, like you'll often have tenants that have been in place 20 years or over. So if the tenant's mm -hmm. been in place for a very long time, um, because the Japanese tend to avoid confrontation, um, even with deflation, when the rent would have potentially gone down, like if that same tenant would have moved out and rented an exact same place, he might have been paying half the rent these days, but he's still paying the exact same rent that he paid when he moved into the property back in 2000 or 95 or whatever it is. And um, just because okay. they would never approach the landlord to ask for a discount. And the other aspect of it is that they don't want to move. Like they prefer to stay in the same place till the day they die kind of thing in many cases, especially um, if they're middle-aged plus. So gotcha. we sometimes see a property that's got very high yield on paper when we purchase it. Let's say it's generating eight or nine or seven and a half percent, but the rent is actually the uh, double or 75%, whatever the average rent is these days for comparable properties. Mm -hmm. So we want to look at that beforehand, not necessarily to turn back the deal, but just to say to the seller, well, it's great yield at the moment, but if and when this tenant moves out, instead of um, 35,000 yen a month, they're going to be paying 27,000 yen a month. And that's going to take our yield down from 7% to 5.5%. So we want to um, counter that with a slightly lower offer price. Okay. Yeah, so that makes sense. The building renovation history um, combined with the status of the reserve fund pool to make sure that the building has enough reserve fund to cater for future renovations as they become necessary. Um, or alternatively, if the reserve fund pool is depleted, then we want to make sure that the bigger ticket items have been done in the last 10 or 15 years. And then we're comfortable okay. with building fees are not going to go too far up. And the other thing is the tenant and the average rent that they're currently paying to make sure that the rent's not suddenly going to fall off a cliff kind of thing. Gotcha. So if we can guarantee or close to guarantee that those are pretty well within standard ranges, then we know that, yes, I mean, yield will drop slightly as the property gets older over time, but it's probably not going to be by more than half a percent or three quarters of a percent. It's not going to suddenly half. Okay. Yeah. And then should you expect the property value to go down, I'm guessing? That depends on the location. Really okay. Yeah. Um, the locations that I've mentioned have seen um, growth, some of them slight growth, some of them more significant growth, like Fukuoka and Nagoya, for example, um, took off until 20, late 2019. 
Um, and then Nagoya took a big hit with COVID. Fukuoka, not so much. So Fukuoka is kind of stagnant now, but it uh, has been going up um, quite sharply before that. Nagoya as well, but now took a bit of a hit. Um, Yokohama, Kawasaki, places around Tokyo, Kobe, around Tokyo and Osaka have definitely been growing. And all of these places that I've just mentioned are probably poised to continue growing if Japan's economy overall does well. Um, okay. Macroeconomics are macroeconomics. So whether Japan's economy will continue to do yeah. it or not, I don't know. Um, if it does, you don't have a crystal ball. No, no, I don't. <laughs> Too bad. The other places, the prefectural capitals and the satellite cities. So again, Saitama, Kumamoto. Um, I'd say probably Kyoto and Sapporo as well. Probably not poised to grow as much just because they're not hugely gaining in population um yeah. whereas the other cities that i've mentioned are not because they're i mean fukuoka specifically there are children being born but the rest of them it's just because the smaller townships as the population dies out the smaller townships sort of conglomerate into the bigger city centers so as long as population continues to grow there whether organically or not then property prices will probably hold at least hold. If the economy does well, hopefully it'll go up at least slightly. Um, but places where the economy is kind of stagnant, um, if the economy does well, they'll stay put. Otherwise, they might drop a little bit. But with investment properties, it's also a little bit different because they get priced based on the actual yield that they can command rather than market fundamentals. So mm -hmm. it's more a question of whether the rent stays the same or drops, right? Okay. Yeah. So rent can go down. It definitely hasn't gone up much since we've been in business, but it can go down slightly if, um, for example, there's a large development that's been constructed in the vicinity and people can suddenly get nicer, newer apartments for a price that's higher, but not that much higher. And then that creates pressure on older building landlords to drop their rents down a bit. And if you happen to get a vacancy at the wrong time of year, say just after April when the companies are all doing the recruiting and shuffling and relocating of staff and the uni graduates start working for big companies, that's like high season for moving. So the two months leading into April. Um, if you happen to get a vacancy right after that, or if the property is in cold country like Sapporo again and you happen to get a vacancy in the winter, or if you're near a university and it's not nowhere near the end of a semester, all of those factors um, can create a lot of supply and little demand on the tenant side. In those cases, we might have to drop rent. And when we do drop the rent, which we try to avoid, like we'll try to do all sorts of like offer the tenants a bonus, like first free month of rent or we're going to pay your move-in fees or um, we're going to pay your uh, guarantee company sign-up fee or whatever. We prefer to do that rather than reduce the rent if we can because if we reduce the rent, then that will affect the resale price. Gotcha. Because yeah, that makes sense. Because these small condo units are not going to be owner-occupied properties, right? The only people who would buy them are investors. Mm -hmm. And the only people who would be in, living in them would be renting. They, they'd never be able to afford to buy them. Yep. So they're strictly classified as investment properties, and then they're 
strictly priced based on the rental yields that they can command. So if rent significantly dropped or building fees significantly went up and then the, um, the yield of the property uh, became lower, then that would reduce its resale price as well. Okay. Sorry, very long. Yeah, that sounds pretty that. straightforward. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I like, I like the details. It's good. Uh, I guess my other question would be, and I'm sorry because I've, I've heard you explain this before on another podcast episode, but I don't remember. So what are, what are the initial and ongoing fees um, to use NTI for this? So we charge on the purchase price um, for the budgets that you're talking about, it's probably going to be 5% plus tax. Um, unless the, unless you end up buying a single property that's over that's getting close to six and a half million yen, in which case it'll go down to four percent. But otherwise, if we're talking about properties that are five million yen or under, it's five percent, and it's capped at a minimum of two hundred and fifty thousand yen, which is five percent of five million. Okay, gotcha. And so then five percent. So you, if you had like a hundred thousand US dollars, it's like five thousand dollars. So if you buy, yeah, but if you're buying a single property at a hundred thousand bucks, then um, we would go down to four percent. Oh, okay, oh, yeah. gotcha. So it's five percent up to six point three percent, which is when four um, percent evens up with five percent, and then it goes down to four percent. Okay. And then if you end up buying something pricier over twenty million yen, then it goes down to three percent. But for your budget is a hundred k, so that's probably going to be. Um, like we said, if we're going for two or three assets, they're probably going to be within the 5% range. Gotcha. And then the ongoing... So the ongoing depends on whether you're comfortable being in touch with building management and property management on your own insurance company. I don't want, I don't want to. Because no. it would just end up being my wife who does it. I'm sure she doesn't want to. So. That was going to be my next question. I was going to actually ask if your wife is comfortable just receiving like the monthly reports and paying the bills kind of thing. Um, yeah, because even if I could do it, yeah, I don't think they want to hear from me. I don't know. If we'll, if we'll put a property manager in place and uh, we'll tell them that you're speaking and reading and writing Japanese, they're not going to have an issue. Oh, okay. That's cool. uh, so if you're okay with that, we can put you in touch directly with them and you can handle it. If not, we charge... Um, Again, at this budget level and rental income level, it's going to be 3% of the gross rental income. Okay. And then what does the property manager charge usually? Their average is 5%. In some particular cities where we've got a lot of properties with a single PM, we can reduce that to 4%. Um, in other cities where there's only one property manager doing everything, like in Shikoku, it sometimes goes all the way up to 8 or 10%. Um, the average is usually 5%. We don't have too many cases where it's beyond that. Okay, yeah. It's usually like 10 in the U.S. It's yeah, Australia too, it's 8 or 9%, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but they also charge um, a placement fee when they put a new tenant. So when the property is vacant, obviously, they don't charge, and we also don't charge. Um, but when mm -hmm. they place a new tenant, they will charge you for advertising and placement fees. And for that, their standard is one month of rent. Um, if um, one month of gross rental income, they take the first month. Gotcha. And then even if, if there's like key money, um, or is there not key money at this price point, I guess? Um, 
key money is the actual money used to replace the lock and the key. I think you might be referring to the thank you fee, the raking. Oh yeah, raking, yeah. So raking depends on location. In some places, it's still a very stubborn, ingrained habit like Tokyo and Osaka. Um, some places it's not. Some places the property managers charge it and keep it. Some places it goes to the uh, landlord. We basically advocate our PNs not to charge that fee. We don't think it's a very fair fee, uh, to be frank. But, yeah. um, I've never felt particularly thankful paying it. As a tenant, no. As a landlord, some people really like getting it, right? But um, we, we yeah. try to avoid charging it if we can. Uh, key money is key money. I mean, any, any new tenant wants to replace the lock and the key, and that does cost about 200 bucks. So that's always the case. Yeah, years years and years ago, they just they used to translate Reikian as key money on like some of these websites in English. Um, so I thought that's what they were calling it still, but apparently not. Thank you, Fee. They're like uh, not nice to write down, maybe. So <laughs> yeah, maybe, huh? Gift, gift. As accurate as it would be. Uh, <laughs> so the key money is usually charged. There's also a cleaning fee that the tenant needs to pay either when they move in as a deposit or when they move out. And then we would normally try to insist that they get a, a guarantor company like rent insurance. And that mm -hmm. would cover the landlord for up to three months of delinquency or damages or absconding tenants or whatever it may be. Yeah. If for some reason the tenant cannot get that because they've, you know, they're foreign students who've just arrived in the country and, you know, a guarantee company won't take them on for any reason or um, they're on welfare or government support and the guarantee company doesn't like that, then we can try to charge them a security deposit instead of that. That would usually be equal to one or two months of rent. Okay. Um, but we much prefer the guarantee company because with them, um, it's easier for us to try and demand even a bit more than those three months, whereas security deposit is, that's it. That's what you got, right? Yeah. And if they don't, if they can't provide either or, then we're not going to take them on as a tenant. That's probably a red flag anyway. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, what all that means is like, for example, if you sent me a deal and you said it looks like it's going to be 6% um, annual profit, then that's 6% after the 3% to you and 5% or so to a property manager, right? So it's, okay. Yeah. So the... Um, uh, it's not negative 1% or something, negative 2%. Yeah. Don't okay. Those, so when you see those zeros on the MLS websites, um, they're usually gross. So I wouldn't take that as okay. gospel at all. But what we mm -hmm. see, um, once we evaluate a deal, whether it came from online or it came from directly from a realtor, we're going to put in an Excel sheet for you and we're going to show you clearly um, what the purchase costs are. We don't know exact purchase costs when we evaluate a deal. So we assume worst case purchase costs. And then okay. we're going to show you what the running costs are. So it's going to include the property manager's fee. Uh, it's going to include the insurance. It's going to include our fee and building fees. And then the percentage that you're going to get at the bottom of the Excel sheet is going to be a net pre-tax. So it includes all of the purchase and the known running costs. It doesn't include your individual tax circumstances. So we don't know what kind of income tax or corporate tax you might be paying. Okay. And it doesn't include any unknowns. So vacancies, maintenance, 
we can roughly assume on average, but if you're only going to be owning two or three properties, that averages can be hugely skewed. Like you might have, you know, a ten, all three tenants move in a month after you bought the properties, or you could hold on to them for 10 years without an issue. So I can tell you that vacancy and maintenance roughly on average uh, tend to be about 10% of the gross rental income over time. But that's, okay. all, that's over time. So I, would, I wouldn't take that again as gospel um, when you purchase. And then the and, only other thing it doesn't include is your annual property tax, which we also don't know in advance because it depends on the official evaluation of the property. But okay. you can normally assume, unless you're a millionaire that's making huge income in Japan, you can normally assume that uh, property tax and income tax will probably take you down by about 0.5%, about half a percent. Okay. So the net pre-tax that we give to you... Um, let's say we say seven, it's probably going to be after taxes, it's probably going to be 6.5. And again, depending on the sort of income you're generating in Japan from other sources, um, your purchase costs can be carried forward for a period of three years and uh, claimed as tax deductions. Okay. For two or three properties, um, if they're the only income that you'll be making in Japan or your family member will be making in Japan, then that's probably going to be tax-free for the first three years. Okay. And then who has to file these taxes? I mean, it sounds like... An accountant for that. Okay. Yeah. We can put you in touch with an accountant, uh, English-speaking accountant who can provide that service. It's usually... Um, for a single person, it's usually about 7,500 yen per property. Uh, if it's a couple, maybe 10,000 yen per property per annum. Okay. Let's write this down. Um, assuming, assuming that it's and, for individual ownership, not under corporate ownership, because then accounting becomes more. Yeah. Expensive. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm guessing you would probably want a bigger portfolio before you go corporate anyway. It's not going to be worth it because you're going to be paying two, three thousand yeah. a year just for accounting and bookkeeping. You want to have some serious Sounds fun to do that. Yeah. Okay. And then I don't know if you have many clients in the U.S., but are they responsible, for example, for making their own K-1s and things that they submit to the IRS? Um, so do their taxes domestically so you bring you what you do is you get your tax return uh, report from the accountant you'll provide a, a summary in english and stamp it with their seal of approval the, the, obviously the original documents you get from the tax department are going to be in japanese but the yeah. accountant the accountant will provide an english summary of what you've paid in japan if you've paid anything and then okay. you take that to your accountant or if you're doing it on your own you factor that into your uh, k1 in the u.s Okay, and, um, yeah. Japan no, I'll just throw it at the account and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. So Japan and the U.S. have a tax treaty in place to make sure that you're not going to be yeah. double taxed. Um, so whatever sure. the difference is between your tax um, threshold here and there, they're going to debit you in the U.S. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, interesting. Mm. Someday we should do an episode where I explain exactly how much it ended up costing to do taxes in the U.S. Yeah. and. Savings great. and things, maybe in a few years. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it's hard to just have a hypothetical conversation about it. It's a lot easier when you have the actual numbers of what was paid and what was earned. 
Well, a lot of it is individual circumstance too, right? Like some people are wizards. It's like minimizing their income in all countries that they're operating in and they pay practically zero taxes, like Amazon kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Uh, whereas other people are just like, you know, by the book and they might be making a fairly substantial income and then they could be, you know, they could be coughing it up in, in their home country. So it's really individual. But um, from our perspective here, people who have no other Japanese income aside from the property portfolios, and if they're talking about property portfolios at the um, size that you're discussing, they're usually tax-free for the first three years and then they're paying something like... 5%, I think, for every yen beyond the first net um, 3,500 bucks or so. So not much tax in Japan, but yeah, whatever they're paying gotcha. at home. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Mm. Um, and then I'm guessing you pretty much never have clients get property loans. Or just only, using one, leverage to... only ones that have been living in Japan and generating Japanese income for a while. So with residency, okay. Um, there are some loan products available for non-residents um, who set up a corporation in Japan. Um, okay. But the terms are not super attractive. So. Okay. Yeah, I, I, for your family member, it would definitely not be an attractive option. Like it would be a, an option that would be attractive again if they want to set up a corporate structure here. Um, and pay two, three thousand bucks a year to maintain that structure, and then okay. their corporate tax is going to be much higher until they reach a level where individual tax, like corporate tax, is capped at twenty um, percent plus something. Whereas individual tax can go beyond that, but only for higher income streams. Okay. Um, and then the loans that they will be able to get as non-residents would be 60 to 70% LTV at 3 to 4% interest rates. Okay. Yeah. Um, not bad. It's not horrible, but it's going to be strictly mm -hmm. central Tokyo properties and only for long-term residential purposes. And then the lenders, yeah. some of the lenders enforce that by um, designating in the long terms that you have to work with their designated property managers just to make sure you're not doing Airbnb or, you know, monkey business with it. Um, okay, yeah. And central Tokyo only, so the yield is going to be pretty low. Although cash on cash yield might not be that bad. Yeah, that's what I expected you to say. I was just curious if I was guessing correctly, but okay. Mm -hmm. But then um, once cool. you've lived here personally and generated an income in Japan for a good year or two, then under your own name, you could potentially qualify for a local loan. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I think we're going to be leaving Japan in a few months. So. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to go over to California to be close to my parents for a while because they want yeah. to be around their grandkids. And then after that, who knows? We have a hard time staying in one I, place. I, didn't, I. Know, I didn't even know you had kids. That's news for me. Yeah, we do. We have a daughter who's two months old and a son who's almost two years old. Oh, wow. That's exciting, yeah. man. Two months. But that, that explains the black bags under your eyes kind of thing, right? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that, that would explain it for sure. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Okay, so going back to the slide, that, that's probably a good segue to ask you about your um, business because um, 
Um, what our listeners don't know is that you're probably going to be um, one of our new sponsors on the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're so looking can, forward to can it. you tell us a little bit about the business, what it is that you do? and uh, Yeah. So Native Shark is a platform for learning Japanese. And it started years and years ago as just a blog on how to learn Japanese. Um, back then it was called Nihongo Shark and I was the only person doing it. And it just grew organically over the years. And then we started teaching Japanese after a while. And we were doing, you know, courses on everything from JLPT courses to stuff on casual language. We had thousands and thousands of lessons. And then we noticed that a problem our students had was, yeah, it's great that all the content is there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to actually study it and learn it. Story of my so life. we've tried to think, you know, yeah, right? Because <laughs> it's so much effort to study, and it's so inconvenient using most of the tools out there. Like you get a book on how to learn a language, and it's so inefficient because, you know, you have to, like, download the MP3s or the CDs and then match up with the book while you're reading to hear the audio, and then you forget everything you read, and then it's just a mess. And even we, even with our courses, like, we're a little bit better than that because, you know, the audio is there on the web page, and, you know, we had flashcard decks and stuff. But it still just wasn't simple. So we wanted to make a platform that makes it simple to learn Japanese, and that's what Native Shark became. Um, so literally you can just create an account and then you tell it your goal, your study goals. Like I want to learn Japanese within three years or four years, whatever. And then it just gives you a button that says study now every day. And you just click it and just keep clicking and reading what's in front of you and listening. And that's it. And you learn Japanese that way. As long as you want kind of thing. You just sit in front of the screen until you've had it and then you go do something else. Yeah, so it would assign you things to do each day. So, yeah. um, And so most days after the first day, you'll have your reviews that you got to do. And, you know, we use a space um, repetition system, like an algorithm to show you things before you forget them. Um, you know, flashcards from past lessons you read, things like that. And then it would tell you, you know, you have one unit to do today, for example. And a unit might consist of maybe learning some kana if you haven't finished learning kana yet um, reading one or more lessons about some grammar points or a certain way of saying something um, some kanji that you need to learn some new vocab and then a dialogue just to sort of wrap it up um, so you'd just be going through one of those each day like a unit and if you're at a faster pace you'd be going through multiple units in a day and yeah that's all you got to do just Show up, and then you can, if you want to skip days, you don't have to do a unit every day, but if you want to keep making progress, you can. So our big thing was, you know, how can we get people to make progress consistently learning Japanese? And we, re we released the platform in August of last year, and it's working quite well. We have students that have been studying for, like, over 200 days straight, over 250 days straight. Quite a few students now. I don't think I've ever done yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that. Maybe I have. I don't know. Um, which, yeah, I think is so difficult to do, to show up every day and make progress. Um, and, yeah, Native Shark, we have an awesome team that designed how it works. Um, 
And I want to give them lots of credit for making it so that it's easy to show up every day and do things. Cause they and I are over here doing the content mostly, you know, like I edit, write and review lessons and translations and things like that. And she oversees the creation of the Japanese content, which we're really, really, really picky about. Yeah. Um, and then the technical aspects are mostly managed by our CEO, Caleb and our CTO, Jacob. Um, they're like the dynamic duo of all things technical. And yeah, it's just going really well and we're excited for the future. Right now we've got, so we've, we divide Japanese into four phases. Um, and the idea is once you finish four, phase four, you would be a near native speaker of Japanese. Right. And right now we finished phase one and we're a little bit into phase two content. So phase one equates to roughly two years of studying at a university, I would guess, two or three years. Um, but with us, it's like if you study it one unit a day, it's like four months or something, four or five months. It's a lot faster. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if anyone, if anyone, anyone wants to check it out, you can just go to nativeshark.com. Um, it's Native Shark without an E, but if you type it with an E also, it works. So don't worry about it, Native Shark. And is that mainly for um, um, speaking and listening, or does it? Do you also have reading, writing, kanji, or what's? Yeah, we have everything. Um, so it's interesting you ask about writing because no, we don't have writing right, right now. Writing. I mean, like typing. Writing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and no, we don't have typing either because that wouldn't be what we call a core study activity. So it's this whole thing with like. You download a language learning app, for example. I'm not going to name other ones, but they exist, right? And they give you these activities like typing things, dragging things across your screen, which I think and our team thinks is just a horrendous waste of time. And it doesn't actually help at all yeah. based on studies. And it doesn't improve your productive ability based on the scientific research. So it's like, why would we have students do that when instead we could show them content in a way that is productive. Um, so we don't have writing, but we do usually would be able to type in Japanese, yes, if you read it. We do teach kanji. Um, specifically, we never write Japanese content the way, unless it's the way a native speaker would write it. So, mm -hmm. you know, you go take a class or read a book on how to learn Japanese, and a lot of times they write it without kanji in this really weird way that no one that's Japanese would ever use it. Yeah. Um, so we don't do that ever. And we don't use, we have like formality markers to mark um, the type of language it is. So like we have formal casual okay. and then textbook casual, textbook formal, because 99% uh, of the content you would get in a textbook or a classroom is not the way people talk in the yes, real world. I've noticed that actually. <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed because you live in Japan. Yeah, like um, the, the sensei would go through something. Nobody ever says that. Like, I've never They heard don't, that. no. Yeah. And that drove me crazy because I'd, I self-taught for most of Japanese. And then I sounded like a textbook. And I just looked around and no one talked like me. And I just... Yeah. And it was really frustrating for me. So I, I, I always knew that I wanted a platform that didn't have that problem. So we have markers because, you know, sometimes it is helpful to have a textbook-like sentence because you can, it's easier to explain how the grammar works. Yeah. But 
in those cases, we mark it. We say textbook casual, textbook formal. So you know, uh, people probably don't talk like this, but I might see it written in a book or something. That's brilliant. Yeah, and on that note, we have a we, we list the context for pretty much every sentence. So we tell you, you know, who would say it to whom in what kind of situation. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. I could talk for hours about it. <laughs> no, it's good. Is there um, is there like, oh, if somebody logs onto your website, do they have um, like a trial lesson or something that they can do just to see how the system works? Oh yeah, if you go there, um, you get a the free trial is seven days long. You don't have to enter a credit card or anything. You just put in your email and then start Doesn't studying right away. Good free trial. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you like it, subscribe. And if you don't like it, that's cool too. So native, um, we have a community also. NativeShark.com, let me just repeat that for listeners. NativeShark.com without an E. And there's a yes, N-A-T-I-V Shark. Yeah, and there's a seven-day free trial, no credit card required. They can just try that. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, and if you have more questions, we have a really great community. Um, you can go to NativeShark.com slash community, or if you just go to our homepage, there's going to be a, a, a link to the community in a in the nav bar because um, then you can just ask one of our students what what they think of it because obviously I'm biased I yeah it pays for my livelihood and I work there um, but you could just go ask an, another student like do you think this is good for me in my situation and they'll let you know and the community is like a forum is that also free to access for people uh, so it's in discord I don't know if you know what discord is uh, yeah. it's yeah so it's in discord we have I don't know, like 1,500 members or something like that, 1,200 members. Uh, it's totally free, just lots of people who want to learn Japanese talking to each other, and they do, they do fun stuff like events. Like, I know that I think they just finished their first book club event. Like, everyone bought some children's book and read it together. Um, people post language learning memes, and they post their progress that they've made through the platform. Uh, it's really motivating to see the progress because everyone does much better than I did as a student. That's probably a big part of why people stick with it, isn't it, the community? Yeah, some people have said it's, it's been a huge part of it, for sure. And then... Um, you, don't, you don't have to join it if you don't want to, though. Yep, yep. Okay, that's awesome. So we'll, um, we'll make sure people have a look at that, and we'll hear about that on future podcast episodes as well. And yeah, cool. so any other questions to us? Anything that we can do? Or do you want us to just start sending you uh, yeah. free samples of properties and engagement, pro, uh, engagement forms and so forth? Uh, I have one kind of fun question. It's not really <laughs> practical. But okay, so right now we're staying in an area of Tokyo, sort of near Haneda Airport. Um, and I would say within a two or three block radius. We've been here about a year. You know, within a two or three block radius of this apartment, I've probably seen five different either apartment buildings or, or houses that were kind of old and run down, get bought, demolished, and built into a new property. Yep. Um, or several new properties, which I'm sure you know is a thing that happens. And are you ever thinking about doing things like that, like more creative real estate or... Because I'm sure that these people are making lots of money doing it. Um, yeah, the people who usually move in on these plots, especially in the area where you're at, um, are going to be developers. So it's going to be a um, small or medium development company that just sits there and waits for these older homes 
um, they usually wouldn't wait for them to go on the market. So they'd start bombarding the um, the owners or the owners, the the owners yeah. in many cases, um, with offers. Um, we have had customers look into that. It's usually, again, that's that's really attractive in really attractive areas, which makes it very expensive uh, land plots. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes quite a few, considering the fact that most of our customers can't get loans in Japan, like you've mentioned. Um, so it yeah. takes a fair bit of capital and a fair bit of capital in cash um, means a fair few investors. Um, so our customers specifically have not been able to band enough of them together um, to build <laughs> one of those. We have had okay. we have had customers who have bought land plots um, with old blocks on them and just rebuilt, but not in central city areas, no. Because where you're at, okay. it's going to be a good few million bucks to buy a land plot like that. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, have you ever thought about making a syndication? And yeah, then... we have. We've shared some information about it, but the um, interest that we get from our customers is mostly related to um, turning them into short-term state properties, not necessarily for long-term leases. Um, okay. Yeah. If somebody's putting that much money into it and getting into bed with strangers, kind of thing. They wanted to generate at least eight, nine, ten percent. Okay. Yeah. And unless you turn it into short-term stay operation, that's not going to reach that, especially not in Tokyo and areas like that. Um, so we haven't can, go for it. Okay. Can you expect um, returns to go up? For example, as opposed to buying like one unit in a mansion, like if you bought like the whole building, can you expect your return to be higher per unit? Return would be about the same, maybe a little, okay. bit, a little bit lower if you buy something that's already got tenants in them, because some of the tenants would be paying higher rent, some of them would be paying lower rent. Whereas with individual units, you can pick and choose the highest yielding ones. Um, returns are pretty similar, but the advantage of buying a building is the flexibility that you've got with it, right? So you can decide to do whatever you want. There's no building bylaws and owner unions that you need to deal with. At any point gotcha. in the future, if you want to apply for a short-term, like a real short-term stay, a minpaku stay, you can do that for whatever the local municipality allows. Um, but that's going to be completely impossible to do with individual units in a co-owned block. And then you've also got the um, creative freedom to do other things with it, right? You can turn it into a shared office space. You can turn it into a guest house. If it gets yeah. to a shark school, in-person yeah. school. You can, I mean, at some point, if it gets too old or not profitable, you can just mow it down and turn it into a parking lot, right? Like there's a million things you can do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the downside is that the structural maintenance is also going to be on you, right? There's no monthly fees to cover you for that. So you need to yeah. always put, um, depending on the age of the property, you need to always put 10 to 15% of your income aside um, for if and when things will require maintenance. Okay, yeah, that makes total but sense. Yes, we do have a lot of customers who do that. We just haven't had them um, buy an uh, old uh, Gigi Baba couple out and tear down the place kind of thing. They haven't done that yet. <laughs> okay, someday. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you oh, yeah, it was nice meeting with you. If you oh, wait, 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 I want to hear you're going to say. So, you know, I'm just saying, if you're looking at buildings like that, they usually start at around 300,000 in like suburban Yokohama, if it's suburban Nagoya, if it's suburban Fukuoka or 
Kobe, it's probably going to start at 400,000, maybe 350. Um, okay. So not the budget yeah. um, you've been describing, but maybe for the next person. Okay, yeah, maybe. Sounds good. All right. Well, pleasure speaking yeah. with you again, man. Yeah, same here. I had a good time. Thank you. I'll be in touch. Bye Thanks. for now. All right, so that was our conversation with Nicholas from Native Shark and soon to be expanding his uh, family office management position to include cross-border investments as well. And while Nico's already a resident here in Japan, if you're thinking about moving here for work or to open a business, or if you already are in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, but you want to switch to a more permanent one, or for any other business or visa-related inquiry, you can't really beat our sponsor, Hiroshi Shimizu. Shimizu-san is an immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener, and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and consultation related to these topics. And he's already done exactly that for many of our listeners and clients. So feel free to reach out to Shimizu-san via his website, japanimmigrationexperts.com, all one word. Oh, and in case you still haven't joined one of our Wednesday Clubhouse Q&A sessions, what are you waiting for? And we got Emil Gorgis, our favorite Tokyo Realtor for expats and their families, Tracy Northcott, the short-term stay queen, anything to do with Airbnb, Minpaku, she's your lady. And now Matt Ketchum joined us, the Abandoned Homes and Akia Guru. And of course, yours truly. So we're there every Wednesday, 1.30 p.m. Japan time, and more than happy to answer any and all of your questions related to the world's second biggest property market. Feel free to join us. So that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Hope you've had a phenomenal Golden Week holiday if you're here in Japan. And until next time, have a great day or night, wherever or whenever you are in the world. Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.